Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Zechariah, chapter 3. Zechariah, chapter 3. Begin reading with verse 1. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, So saith the Lord of hosts, Thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and thou and shalt also keep my courts. And I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at, for behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. For behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Hold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. I don't know about you. But this is an outstanding chapter. This is an absolutely, wonderfully astonishing chapter. Zechariah is being able to see a lot of good things in these visions, in these eight visions in the night. As we said earlier, there are going to come some changes in Israel. At this point, the priest and the high priest is essentially going to replace uh, the king in Israel. Uh, And in another chapter we'll look at here in a minute, we'll notice that the high priest is also going to be crowned as king in Israel. So there is a shift in the perspective of their leadership. Uh, They're going to operate. They're going to operate on a standard and a government. Uh, that is not contingent on the world. The church has always been this way. The church should always be this way. Israel never should have said to Samuel, give us a king that he may judge us like all the other nations. I often heard people say that uh, uh, God will never give you anything bad for you, and he'll never give you more than you can handle. Well, that's often been in response to the fact that people say, be careful what you ask for. 
Be careful what you pray for. You might just get it. And I've, I've heard people say, oh, that's, God's not going to do that to you. Well, Israel prayed for a king like all the other nations. That was not a good thing. And they got a king like all the other nations. Oftentimes in Israel's, uh, in Israel's disobedience and in Israel's uh, refusal to obey, God just lengthened the cord just a little bit and let them go out there and, and, and experience these things in life that were for their detriment. And as we've said before, God in Israel's history showed them every kind of leadership that there was. And every bit of it failed. I think America right now, they got what they asked for in some cases. And that leadership is failing. It is one of the most ridiculous clown comedies I've ever seen in my life. We have a group of people speaking against racism and against sexism who are spending their entire administration nominating people based on their race and sex. That is preposterous to me, is it not? That is preposterous to you, is it not? We see how foolish they are acting, right? Do we do the same, is the question. See, we want them to fix what's going on in Washington, right? But are we even taking time to fix what's going on in our own house? You may think that Washington is running your life. Washington is not running your life. They may be ruining your life, but they're not running your life. And chapter 3 points us to this fact. Chapter 3 points us to the fact that regardless of who stands against you, God is still on His throne. And I love the way that this chapter starts out. That, that Zechariah gets this vision of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, I'd like you to notice here, this is uh, not Joshua that led them to Jericho 700 years before this. It's a different Joshua, but it is Joshua the high priest. Um, I'd like you to also notice that the Hebrew word for Joshua is the Greek word for Jesus. The Hebrew word Joshua, and translated in the New Testament, is the Greek word Jesus. This is why Paul would say in, in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, concerning when Joshua led them across uh, uh, into Canaan's land, if Jesus had given them rest, there had not been room for another day. You say, well, what that's where the translation comes from. So, when you're reading about Joshua in the Old Testament and you're reading about Joshua the high priest, you're reading about a picture of Christ. Look what happens here. Joshua's the high priest. And as far as I know, there was only one high priest at a time. There were other priests under him. But there's only one high priest. And he was the one who was allowed to go into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies place where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And he was the one who was allowed to take the, the offering of the blood, the sacrifice of the blood, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. 
He's the only one allowed to do that. One day a year, the Day of Atonement, this high priest walked into the presence of God and sacrificed for the sins of the nation. If you want to read about the, the requirements of the high priest, you can go back to Exodus and Leviticus. Leviticus 16 is a really good place to start. But one thing that, that uh, we just can point out here that should be an obvious thing is that when this high priest took his office, when he was dressed in all the garments that he was dressed in, there was one thing that he had to be. His garments had to be spotless. Couldn't be dirty. Almost perfect. Well, as, as perfect as man can get it. Everything about his garments typified the coming of Christ, what Christ would do for his people, and the people themselves. You've heard about the breastplate that the high priest wears this little square on front of it had 12 stones on it. 12 stones representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this breastplate is connected to uh, a couple of stones that are on his shoulders. And on these stones on his shoulders are written the 12 names of the tribes of Israel. Six on one side, six on the other. This high priest stands as a representative of the entire nation. The entire nation was represented in one person. What one person did was on behalf of the entire nation. We ought to understand this. As old Baptists, you ought to understand the meaning and the implication of one person doing something that affected the entire nation. And I'd like to remind you that what this one person did was not possible to affect the entire nation. It did affect the entire nation. You understand the difference here? It, he didn't make it possible for the nation to be affected. He did affect the entire nation. And there's a problem though with this because when God gives these visions to Zechariah, he's sort of pulling back, as we've said before, he's pulling back the curtain to eternity. And he's allowing us to see things that go on behind the scenes. While Joshua may stand before the people in clean garments, he's actually not near as clean as he may be perceived. Something else that strikes me about this passage. We know that the devil is a liar, right? The Bible says so. He's a liar and the father of it. But is it possible for the devil to tell the truth? Reminds me of a story that I'd heard many years ago. There was a particular lady in a town, uh, a lady of ill repute, a lady of not great character, who was in a courtroom, and, and several people were called against her. Um, and the question was, is can this person actually tell the truth? And, and every witness, one right after another, no, she's not capable of telling the truth. No, she's not capable of telling the truth. Well, they actually called on a man who was one of our pastors at that time. He called him to the stand and said, is she capable of telling the truth? Now, the reality is, is I guess you could have asked her, you know, what day it was, what time it was. 
where are you at today? And she could have told, yes, it's, you know, Monday, 3 o'clock, and we're in a courtroom. She would be telling the truth, correct? So when they ask the preacher, is she capable of telling the truth? He says, I reckon she's as capable of the rest of us as the rest of us of telling the truth, but I'm just not sure I'm capable of believing her. So you can have such a rotten reputation in the neighborhood that you could tell the truth and as your reputation precedes you, I'm not so sure that I could believe you. Well, here's the question here. Here, is Satan capable of telling the truth? I guess he's just as capable as anybody else of saying anything against me. And I'm sure that the story he would tell about me might well be a true story. But it would be a story void of one thing. The truth of the grace of God. Whatever the devil can say against you is always void of what Christ has done for you. Let's notice this, that the high priest that's standing before the angel of the Lord, Satan was standing at his right hand to resist him. Satan is our adversary. And Satan is standing there to speak against Joshua. Very seldom does Satan have anything good to say, especially about you. And he's standing here before the Lord. And if you come from the concept that Satan is a fallen angel cast out of heaven, that Jesus says, I behold him as lightning falling from the sky, Satan is going to stand here and look at this filthy character Joshua and say, you kicked me out of heaven and yet you're favoring him? Is that not human nature? It's not right for you to do something for them and not do it for me. I'd like for you to also notice something about this. Here is Joshua the high priest. He is to be the leader in Israel. And Satan is standing there to accuse him. Satan is standing there to hinder him. Is it just possible that when the leadership in your life is doing something wrong, it's because the devil is afflicting them? Have you ever woken up and all of a sudden your house is in disarray? I'm not talking internally, your house. I'm talking about your wife's crazy. Your husband has lost his mind. The children act like they ain't never even seen common sense. And you look at everybody and say, what is wrong with you? Why don't you behave? Has it ever occurred to you that what's wrong with this person is not themselves sometimes, but someone greater than them. 
has ever occurred to you that what is wrong with your spouse or what is wrong with your children or what's wrong with your pastor is not that he's just a moron, but that they are actually under attack from the devil. I'm not sure we've ever thought about this much. We kind of shy away a little bit from demonic possession and things like that in the church because there are some folk out there that get really wild with things. That There are some things that people do that you want to look at them and say, what in the world is wrong with you? Sure, there are decisions that some people have made and you want to say, have you ever had any sense? But at the same time, it is worth noting that a lot of times when people make decisions, it's possibly because there is an evil spirit troubling and bothering them. Now, there was an evil spirit that came and troubled King Saul, was there not? And the thing that calmed him down the most was not, you know, 12 steps to bettering yourself. You know, uh, take a vacation from life. The thing that calmed him down was David, the sweet singer of Israel, coming and playing before him. Was the words of David calmed him. The, the implication is the words of this book, the instruction of this book, is most often what people in life need. Not 12 steps to bettering yourself, but just reading God's Word and applying what's in God's Word. Joshua is the high priest. The remission of sins for Israel is upon him. If the devil can tear down the top of the leadership, the rest of it will follow. See, that's kind of backwards a little bit to us because if I, if I, if I cut off the top of the tree, the bottom of the tree still stands. We have to cut out the bottom of the tree in order for the top to fall. But the issue is that the position of leadership, be it in a country, be it in a church, or be it in a home, Starts at the top. And here's a great example for you. Most everybody in here has a wristwatch. If you don't have a wristwatch, you've got some clock on your phone. And it tells you what time it is. Uh, if your clock on your wrist or your clock in your car or your clock in your bedroom is wrong, you're usually the only person it affects. However, if the clock down at the square that the whole town sees is wrong, now everybody's affected. When the leadership is plagued, it's usually everybody else that suffers with it. It's difficult when you deal with a position of leadership. So in other words, if you want the pastor to have uh, influence on your children, you might want to stop disagreeing with everything he says every time he says it. Right? Because if you spend 10 years frying the preacher when you go home in the afternoon, 
Then when your child turns 15 or turns 16 and you realize that they're wild as a best bug, you want to take them to the preacher and say, listen to what he has to say. And they want to look at you and say, you don't even listen to what he has to say. This is doubly, doubly important. Even when it comes to the pastor's family. Because she not only has to look at the pastor as her husband and the head of the home, but she also has to look at her husband as the pastor of the church. No wonder a lot of our families and churches are falling apart, right? Because sometimes we don't stop to think that what's wrong with us is not necessarily we've made a bad decision, not what's wrong with us is necessarily that we have lost our mind, but what is wrong with us is that we are under attack from the devil. That he has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And he does that real, real well. Also, like notice here, <clears throat> that as the devil is standing there to uh, accuse Joshua, it is not left up to Joshua to defeat the devil. Haven't you ever heard that in some of uh, some of the societies around us, some of the religious groups around us? Somebody's having a particularly difficult day. The lawnmower won't crank. You know, the microwave won't work. And, and somebody says, I rebuke the devil. Nowhere in the Bible do you find God telling his children, you know what? You need to go out and whip the devil. The devil's greater than you are. He's smarter than you are. He's stronger than you are. You know what you need? You don't need to get stronger. You need one who's stronger than both of you. This is why the New Testament says greater is he that is in you than he that's in this world. And the Lord God Almighty steps in. And the Lord God Almighty rebukes the devil. And he makes this point. Verse 2. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand, but out of the fire. Everything that the devil could say against Joshua, from a certain standpoint, would be true. Everything that he could say against you or against me should give God rise to condemn us all. But the one thing that Satan is not willing to recognize is that Joshua is a brand plucked out of the fire. You see, if you're an individual who is ready to expose what's wrong with everybody every time they do something wrong, to remind them how wrong they are every time they've done something wrong, you're not on the side of the Lord in this case. You're on the side of the other person. Let me give you an example of that. If, uh, if somebody asked me, did you play sports in high school? Well, sure I did. I played, I played five sports in high school. Oh, big all-star. No, small school. 
The only thing we were required to do was sign our name on a piece of paper to play sports. How small we were. You played football? Absolutely. I did play football. Several positions. Yeah, and then somebody comes up, yeah, you played, but you remember that last game that y'all played and you were in the wrong place at the wrong time? You didn't do what the coach told you to do, and y'all lost because you were in the wrong place. But that wasn't a question. The question was, did I play, not did you play well? Did you play basketball? Sure I did. I played basketball. Yeah, but you remember there was a several times there where you lost your cool, you lost your temper, you did something you weren't supposed to do, technical foul called against you, they shot free throws, they won the game, you lost. But that wasn't the question. Yeah, but you don't need to forget how sorry you are. You don't have to remind me how sorry I am. I bet I don't have to remind any of y'all in here how sorry you are. Do I? Because there's somebody, there's somebody in my life that knows how sorry I am. The devil knows how sorry I am. God himself knows more about me than anybody else does. He knows how sorry I am. The question in Christianity is not about us. The purpose for gathering on Sunday mornings is not about us. The purpose for gathering on Sunday mornings is about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So now what does he do? He says, Satan, I'm done with you. And he pushes him aside, and he's not addressed anymore in this chapter. Praise the Lord. Notice what it said here. Verse 3, And Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. This was an embarrassment at best. Had Joshua gone... Had the high priest gone into the tabernacle and into the Holy of Holies in filthy, disgusting garments, he'd have been killed on the spot. As a matter of fact, we know that the high priest actually, uh, in his robe and in his garments, at the, at the bottom or the hem of his robe that he wore, had, had bells on it. They were bells and pomegranates. Well, I don't think it was actual pomegranates. I think it was sewn things that looked like in the shape of a pomegranate, but he had these bells on the bottom of his garment so that when he walked, he jingled. On the bottom of his foot or on his ankle, there was a rope tied. So that as he went through the temple, as he went through the holy place and into the holy of holies, you could hear jingle, 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 jingle. You knew he was still alive. The rope around his ankle was in case God struck him dead. You could drag him out. Because if you went in to get him, you died too. Leviticus 16 tells us that when this high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, there's no man in there with him. In other words, what he did, he did by himself. Nobody aided him when he went into this holy place. Nobody helped him. Nobody was in there with him. He did this by himself. And if he didn't succeed, there was nobody else that could do it for him. You drug him out. Room outside. Joshua's standing here in these filthy garments. What are we going to do about this? Is the Lord going to tell Joshua to go take a bath? Maybe he needs, maybe Joshua needs to go get baptized. Maybe Joshua needs to do some repenting here. That's, that's, that's not what it said. The scripture simply says in verse 4 that God commands that they that stood before him should take away the filthy garments from him. 
And the scripture says that God says to him, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. What's happening to Israel that they've come now that they've come out of Babylon is a great mystery of grace. The number of times that God had to deal with the disobedience of Israel in the Old Testament could just go on and on and on. But the fact that He has brought them out of Babylon back into Jerusalem, they're going to rebuild the walls, they're going to rebuild the temple, is an absolute mercy of grace. He's going to put these people back in this place. They're going to reinstitute the worship of God and go on from here. In other words, the fact that any of you or the fact that I will ever stand before God in peace and in hope is a sheer act of God's mercy and God's grace. The very fact that when we die and we stand before God for all eternity and we stand clean and we stand clothed is an absolute act of the mercy of God. He says here in verse 5, And I said to them, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre on his head. Clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by uh, a fair mitre. Do we we have any idea of what that might be? That fair mitre there uh, is actually a hat. Actually, is something that looks like a turban. And the purpose for this is well, let's all just read it together. I think this is Exodus. Let's turn to Exodus uh, twenty-eight. Exodus twenty-eight. I want you to see this. To see what Moses writes here. Because again, what did we say? We said that Satan is going to accuse. He's the adversary. Uh, the great enemy of God's people. He's accusing them before God. But he himself is not seeing everything. Look, the devil can, has, is very good at reminding you of your past, is he not? And you know, is, that, is that not one of the greatest hindrances in your life and mine, as we sit here and we crucify ourselves because of the past. One of the problems with that is we're sort of Arminian in our belief. What do you mean by that? Well, when you go to the church down the street, their answer to your problem is, you just may need to make a decision for Jesus. If you just make up in your mind to choose Jesus and you decide to turn from your sin, you'd be a better person. You know, if that was all it took, we'd all be great people by 15. How many times have you turned over a new leaf in your life? How many times have you said, I'll never do that again? How many times have you said to God, God, get me out of this position, I'll never do this again? Am I the only it's quiet in here? Am I the only one that's ever done that? Am I the only worthless liar in here? Oh good, I'm preaching a bunch of liars. Let's keep going. 
Uh, we've all said that. Interestingly enough that we want to hold other people to higher standards than we hold ourselves sometimes. We want to be judged on our intentions while we judge others on their actions. The devil always wants to judge you on your actions. Never on your intentions. God doesn't judge you on either one. He judges you on the body and person of Jesus Christ. And when, and when Zechariah says, set that fair mitre on his head, put that hat upon his head, there's a reason for that. Exodus 28, verse 36. Thou shalt make plates of pure gold and grave upon it like the engravings of his signet, holiness to the Lord. And thou shalt put it on a blue lace that it may be upon the mitre, upon the forefront of the mitre it shall be. Wait a minute. What now? we got this pure white turban sitting on the high priest and this gold plate right in front and engraving on this gold plate is holiness to the Lord. So that when you look at this high priest, one thing that stands out to you is the signet this engraving that this person is holiness to the Lord. What the devil cannot see is the grace of God that has been placed upon him. That in spite of who and what you are, by the blood of Christ, you are holiness to the Lord. You are a holy thing. Do you remember when we read earlier in chapter 2? Turn back to Zechariah chapter 2. I don't remember if we touched this at all last week or not. But in chapter 2 and verse 8, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoil you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. The apple of the eye is that part right in the middle. Remember in Deuteronomy 32, it says that God found Jacob in a desert in a waste howling wilderness, kept him, uh, led him about, kept him as the apple of his eye. What are you going to do if I walk up to you and take my finger and attempt to stick it in your eye? What's the first thing that's going to happen? Eyelid's going to close, right? Something's going to close down over it, protecting that. What we're seeing here is that it's here is the devil standing to hinder Joshua, to harm Joshua, to advert to uh, be an adversary to the high priest, and God Himself is closing down, saying, "You can't have him. He's mine. He's a brand plucked out of the fire. I will clothe him, and I will put a label on him, holiness." Unto the Lord. In chapter uh, chapter six, Zechariah. When we look at this position and this office of high priest. He then says in chapter 6, verse 11, not only have we put this 
this turban back on his head uh, that says holiness to the Lord. He says, then take silver and gold and make crowns. This is Zechariah chapter 6, verse 11. Then make crowns and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Notice that term branches in all caps. It's not the only time that that, term, that word, the branch, appears in Scripture. It appears about three or four different times. Uh, one of those times that uh, it appears is Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1 says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. This branch shall grow out of the root of Jesse. What happens when you cut a tree down? Tree dies, right? But what happens if you cut the tree down but leave the stump? Come back and there might be some little green things growing off that stump, right? So what happens when you create a human race? And sin comes along and cuts it down. Human race dies, right? But what happens if you don't remove the stump? Which is Christ the life giver. You let enough time pass and guess what happens? In some obscure land somewhere. In some obscure way. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child. And he shall grow up as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. The government shall be upon his shoulders. And he shall be holiness to the Lord. This branch that, that Joshua is, is so privileged to typify speaks of none other than the coming of Christ, does it not? I want you to notice something here. He shall grow up out of his place. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Uh, we're back in Zechariah. Did I say we're back in Zechariah? Did I tell you all that? I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. See, I get nervous sometimes. I want folk to follow me. I want you to see where we're at. I want you to see this is what the Scripture says, not what the preacher says. Zechariah chapter 6. Everybody find it again? I'll give you time to get there. You find it, say amen. Oh, right. Verse 12, he says that he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne and he shall be a priest upon his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. He shall build the temple. He shall bear the glory. And he shall sit and rule 
as a priest upon his throne. Do you see that? You see that he will be a priest upon his throne? You say, why are you going over this? We need to understand this. We need to ingrain this in our mind. You have a priest who's also a king. And his priesthood is the same place his kingship is. That's fairly straightforward. Y'all are looking at me like this is, so what? I promise there's a point to this. I promise you there's a point to this. That you need to understand you have a high priest who will rule upon a throne. That the same place his priesthood is, his throne is. The same place his throne is, his priesthood is. If his throne can't be somewhere, his priesthood cannot be there also. They're in the same place. If his priesthood can't be somewhere, the throne can't be there. They're both in the same place at the same time. Have I beat that horse to death enough? Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. And verse 1. Hebrews 3 verse 1 says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. We don't need high priests anymore today, do we? We have one, don't we? Christ Jesus. So when I, when I go around to look, to driving around the city and I see here's a church here pastored by apostle so-and-so, I don't need no apostle anymore. I've got an apostle. I've got a high priest. The Lord Jesus Christ is your apostle and high priest. For this man was counted worthy for more glory than Moses, insomuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man. He that built all things is God. Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? Catch it? We are the house Christ built as the high priest. Chapter 8, please. Chapter 8. Verse 3, for every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. This man, Christ Jesus, the high priest, he had something to offer. What did Christ offer? Offered himself, did he not? All right, verse 4. Look at this. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. Seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. The scripture just said, if he's on earth, he should not be a high priest. Is that what it said? Is that what your book said? If he were on earth, he should not be a priest. 
When Christ walked this earth, wasn't technically a priest. Right? Why was he not a priest when he was on this earth? Chapter 7 tells you why. Chapter 7 and uh, verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Jesus came from the wrong tribe. He didn't come from the tribe of Levi. Christ came from the tribe of Judah. Here's, here's a prime example of how God sets up election in the Old Testament and doesn't care what anybody else has to say about it. I don't care what tribe you were from. If you weren't from the tribe of Levi, you couldn't be a priest. And I don't care whose family you were in, in the tribe of Levi, the high priest was Aaron's family. You ever notice this? The high priest came from Aaron's side of the family. You say, well, what in the world are you talking about? The high priest in Zechariah is going to rule on a throne and be a high priest at the same time. But the Scripture said, Christ's on earth, He can't be a priest because He came from the wrong tribe. So what does that tell you? That tells you that the Messianic reign is not going to happen on this earth. He's not going to come back to Jerusalem and establish a throne and rule from Jerusalem. He can't. Because if He's on this earth being a king, He can't be a priest. Wrong tribe. He's got to be a priest on a throne somewhere else. And when Christ, the Bible tells us, is not entered into the holy places made with hands, but He's entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us, He is a king and a priest on His throne right now in heaven's pure world. That's why it's very important that you read the Bible for what it says. We have a high priest right now on the right hand of God, whoever liveth to make intercession for the saints of God. Every single day that you exist and you live, when you sin before God, you rat, you, you unrighteous little rat. God looks down and says, I need to kill that thing. I've never had so many roaches in my house in all my life. And Jesus says, but I paid for that rope. See, there's something that you and I get. We get conviction for our sin. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed that? The job of the Holy Spirit is never to forgive anybody. When Jesus talked about that the Holy Spirit would come, he, he never said that the Holy Spirit would come and forgive you of your sins. The Holy Spirit would come and judge the world in righteousness. You're convicted by the Holy Spirit when you do what's wrong. But you're forgiven by the blood of Christ. We experience conviction every day. But Paul said in Romans 8, there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ. We are convicted every day. 
but because of Christ, we're not eternally condemned. You say, well, that's, that's not right. That's not fair. What do we say about fairs? Fairs are where fat hogs compete for blue ribbons. This is not about being fair. This is about recognizing someone who's gracious and merciful. Now, let's turn back to, uh, to Zechariah 3. Because there's, there's something else here that, that, that we've got to get to. Um, I didn't intend to spend that, that long just on that portion of the high priest. But then I thought, well, y'all don't have any go, anywhere to go till 3 o'clock. So, you know, let's look back here at Zechariah chapter 3. I'd like you to notice something. Zechariah 3 and verse 9. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Uh, that phrase right there ought to be enough to anybody who's read the Bible long enough to know what, what Zechariah is looking at here. God is showing him a time when I, God says, I will in one day remove the iniquity of that land. What are we talking about? Crucifixion. That's exactly what we're talking about. In one day, in six hours on the cross, God's going to take care of all your problems. you imagine that? Anything you've ever gone through? Any trouble you've ever had? Any problem that's ever beset you? In six hours, God's going to take care of it all. Hold the stone that I've laid before Joshua. Upon the stone shall be seven eyes. This is one of those places in there where you have to you have to understand that there's a allegory. Otherwise, you come up with this crazy looking rock with seven eyeballs on it. Yeah, but if you understand that the number of seven in uh, the Bible is the number of completeness, seven days in a week. Seven notes on the scale. Eight is the number of new beginnings. Scale starts over on the eighth note, which is just though repeated. God started off, started over the world with eight people when they came off the ark. Seven, though, is the number of completeness. And the eyes are emblems of, yes, it, eyeballs. God completely sees and knows everything about you. He's omniscient. Sees and knows it all. Upon this stone shall be these eyes. And also, upon this stone, I will engrave the engraving thereof. Have you ever wondered about that uh, scripture in Isaiah 49? and uh, verse... Uh, notice this. Isaiah 49 and verse 15. We've read this probably a dozen times here. Where it says, Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Sure she can. Never seen so many people lose their mind. Never seen so many people lose their mind in America over the threat of not being able to kill their children. Had a person tell me about six months ago, uh, if you really want uh, abortion to end, you need to elect a Democrat because every time Democrats are elected, abortions go down. Well, we've got a Democrat in the office. They're threatening to take away abortions, and now all the Democrats are mad. Huh? Liberalism is a mental disease. 
Sin is a mental disease. These people aren't out there fighting for their rights. I think they're probably out there prompted by spirit that they know not that they are of. Remember, even Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you know not what spirit you're of. Can a woman, though, forget her sucking child? Notice it doesn't say can a mother. Difference between a woman and a mother. Yea, they may forget. Yet will I not forget thee. Oh, we oftentimes stop right there because that verse says enough. What does the next verse say? Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Notice he says, I've graven thee upon the palms of my hands. And I've, I've heard, pre- I've heard, I heard of one of these, you know, newfangled skinny jeans preachers say, uh, God's got a tattoo and it's your name's on his hand. Let's go back to Zechariah. See what this might actually mean. We've got a stone here. Engraven in Zechariah chapter 3, right? God says, I will engrave the engraving thereon. Sure, on these rocks, on these stones that were on the shoulders of the high priest was engraven the names of the tribes of Israel. Well, does that mean that God has engraven your name in his in the palm of his hand with, with pen and ink? Uh, if you got a stone and you're gonna engrave something in it, are you gonna use pen and ink? Can't use pen and ink to engrave in a stone, can you? What are you going to use to, en- to engrave something in a stone? about a hammer and a chisel? How about taking one of those railroad spikes? Down into a board. And looking up. And in the palms of his hands. When he said to Doubting Thomas. Come. Behold my hands. Hold the nail prints in my hands. Thrust thy finger in my side. Be not faithless, but believe. The only way you can engrave a stone is with a hammer and a chisel. And what happened to our Lord is when He came to this earth, we saw just exactly how much He cared for us. That He was obedient unto death even the death of the cross. A man that owed me nothing. Paid all the debt I owed to him. Everything. And this one principle right here, what families fall apart, what churches fall apart, is people don't get the concept of what true, selfless, selfless, godly love really is. It's thinking and doing more for others than for yourself. Sure, we see people around us wallowing back in the mire. Sure, we do. And sometimes you have to let the prodigal wander around in the pigsty for them to really understand how good they had it in the Father's house, right? 
But when the prodigal comes walking back down the road, do we want to meet him at the gate and say, Where have you been? Did we tell you not to do that? Why you got to be like that? We want to look at him and say, I'm glad you're here. Some of our churches have died in the past. I've seen this happen. Over that very attitude. Trying to chastise somebody for everywhere they've been instead of being glad for where they're at. We don't need to be a church that excuses and ignores sin. Certainly not. But there's there's somebody that can deal with sin far greater than you and I can. You and I can sit around and we can look at what other people are doing and complain about it and gripe about it you know, like they do around the water cooler at work? Talk about and complain about how bad the boss is, how bad the manager is, how bad this person is, how bad that person is. And, and we can sit and fuss and, and writhe and work ourselves into a lather complaining about why other people are not good. Have you ever noticed that if you'll just sit around, there's plenty to complain about in life? That's why I don't watch the news anymore. It's just pathetic. It's just one group complaining about what the other group is not doing. The news used to be, here's what happened. You need to decide whether you believe it or not. The news is now, here's what has happened, and and I need to even decide whether it even actually happened or not. I'm not sure what's going on with this wicked world that's out there, but I do know this. Joshua stood before the Lord. You stand before the Lord. When I stand before the Lord, there's one still seated upon his throne. It's not the Republicans or the Democrats. It's not the mainstream media. It won't even be the primitive Baptists sitting on the throne. God Almighty. He's going to look down at those nail scarred hands and say, My son. My King of kings and my Lord of lords. Well, he's the high priest, right? The Bible calls him the high priest of our profession. Did you ever notice, though, as we read kind of swept over it here in Zechariah 3, that he said, say to thy fellows with thee. The high priest has fellows with him. You ever notice that in the New Testament, as they fall before God, they says, thou hast made us kings and priests unto our God and we will serve and worship Him forever. God's made you a priest. When you stand in heaven, you will be clean and white. You will be forgiven. His blood will cover you. You'll stand there with the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and be able to worship Him in perfection forever. The day that Zechariah is telling Israel is coming for them is a small foreshadowing of the great day that is coming for all God's people when Christ returns. Thank you all for your good and patient attention.